If you have your Bibles with you today, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and as you turn there, I just want to let you know that I was able to slip away for a couple of days this week to go camping at the Grand Canyon with my family. We took all five kids and we camped at a tent at the realm of the Grand Canyon because the next day we had a glorious birthday party for my wife's younger grandmother, who's only 90. And so we went out to, uh, to camp at the Grand Canyon. Her older grandmother is 98 and a half. So we go to the Grand Canyon with, uh, with some other family. We had some fun camping. We saw the canyon. Of course, our biggest goal was to keep any of the kids from falling into the Grand Canyon, which we succeeded. We almost lost Micaiah, but we caught him just in time. But my six-year-old Nate uh, told me after he took a long, good view of the canyon to span the distance and the breadth of the canyon, turned around and he said, Dad, God's bigger than the Grand Canyon. I said, you're right, Nate. So he's got a good head on his shoulders. He's like, that's nothing, man. God's bigger than that. So we had a lot of fun. Lisa's actually driving back today from Phoenix with the kids. I flew in uh, last night. But we are finishing up this morning, this fifth uh, message in a part five series on prayer. So we started with Paul's first prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, which is really more of a prayer of enlightenment. And now we've been looking for five weeks at this prayer, the second prayer here in chapter 3 at the end, a prayer of empowerment. And so I've entitled this morning's message as Above and beyond. And I want to read to you the whole prayer in its entirety, but we'll just focus on those last two verses, verses 20 and 21. Paul prayed this, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may, be, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God, thank you for this prayer of Paul so many years ago that we can look at as an example of how to pray this day. God, thank you for this ending of this prayer, this praise that he gives unto you that we can come to you and ask above and beyond all that we could ever think about and that you will give in accordance with your will good gifts to your children. Help us to learn and understand about this passage this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to tell you a story about God giving above and beyond. And I want to tell you a little bit of my story, God's grace in the life of a, of, a, of a little boy born in Georgia, all right? So you guys know that I uh, ended up graduating from high school in 1994. When I graduated from high school, I entered into the junior college where my dad taught, and he signed me up for a slew of hard classes my very first semester. And one of those classes was Chemistry 101. And this particular professor gave a test every day. The test was one question, one problem to solve. You get it all right, you get 100. If you miss any part of it, you get a zero. Every day for the whole semester. I'm like, all right, I got to get ready. So the first day I study, he announces the first day of class. We start, and then it's like day one, my first pop quiz, which really wasn't a pop quiz because we knew it was coming every day. I made a zero. Day two, I studied harder. Pop quiz comes, I made a zero. Day three, pop quiz comes, I made a zero. This is about the time the professor said, half of you are going to drop. You might as well go ahead and do it now. Half of you in my class are going to end up dropping. Day four, zero. Day five, zero. One week of all zeros. Now, you have to understand, I graduated from high school as the salutatorian. So I wasn't used to making five zeros in a row. So I remember praying to God for help to somehow track with this professor of how I could do uh, the, these quizzes and get a better grade. 
And I remember, just, uh, I remember just being brought to the point of tears where I was so frustrated. I felt like I was up against some kind of academic wall that I just couldn't get through. And I prayed and cried out to God. And I just decided, you know what, I'm going to keep the course. I'm going to do my very best. And I started writing Philippians 4.13 on the top of my paper. Now, that's taken out of context, but give me a little grace, all right? I'm just like writing Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me every day on the paper. And from that following Monday... Until the end of the semester, by God's grace, a hundred every time. And my friends, I really believe with all my heart that was the grace of God. What have you received that God has not given to you? He gave power to go above and beyond what I felt like I was able to do in my own strength with God's help. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have to study, right? That was the whole point. I was studying hard, and I was asking God for his grace. I remember taking an English class where I was struggling big time, and I had this one last grade to take, and uh, it was this long paper that I had to get like a 97 on in order to carry this A in the class because I was trying to get into med school. And so I'm carrying this B, and I'm trying to get this A. I got to make a 97. This professor graded all my papers down. I, I worked really hard on the last paper, turn it in, guess what we made? 97. By the grace of God, I was taking a physics class, same junior college, where this physics teacher gives us four questions, and, uh, and each one of them counts 24, uh, 20, 24 points. You see how good I am in uh, my, my education here. Each one of them counts, uh, count 25 points, right? So I remember getting this one physics test that I had studied and prepared for big time, and I go to take the test, and I read question one, I don't have a clue. I'm like, oh, great. It's a time test, 60 minutes. I read question two. I really don't have a clue. I read question three. I am so lost. I read question four. No idea. I'm like, good night. What in the world? I probably studied 10, 15, 20 hours for this one test. I don't have a clue on any of these. And so time was ticking away. That, that long hand got down halfway through. There's 30 minutes left. And I said, well, I might as well just start putting something down on the paper. So I just started regurgitating all the formulas I'd memorized and somehow trying to say, well, maybe this one will work over here. Maybe this one will work over here. Maybe this one will work over here. Take the test. The teacher comes back the next day, said, you guys did awful, had to curve the test. Everybody flunked, except for Adam Tyson. You made 100. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Thank you, Lord. So... <laughs> What I'm saying is God really does. I, I remember, I, I forgot to tell you that halfway through that test, this was the whole point, right? Halfway through that test, I literally remember putting my pen down and just crying out to God and just saying, God, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. I studied, I prepared, I don't have a clue. Would you just help me get one of these answers in here and just somehow get through each one of these? And so I've just seen God answer prayer above and beyond time and time again. I've seen it experientially through school which you may think is trite, but I believe God is interested in all things. I've also seen him do it through raising money to go on trips. When I graduated from high school, I had the opportunity to tour with a singing group called the Continental Singers. Anybody ever heard of the Continental Singers? Well, I was a Continental Singer for a summer. That might explain some things, all right? I don't have a great voice, but I got some good moves, you know what I'm saying? So they did... They do, they do a lot of choreography with their singing. So it's a little bit cheesy, but hey, it's pretty good. So the idea is I, they would come to our church every uh, year, and I said, you know what, one year I want to do that. So I asked my mom and dad, hey, can I sign up and try to go on this trip? It costs five grand. They said, no way. Your sister's getting married this summer. You're about to go to college. We got too much going on. We don't have the money to support that. And I said, well, could I just try? Could I just send out a support letter? Let's just see what the Lord does. And by the grace of God, God, in just a short amount of time, brought in all the support and above and beyond that support within about six weeks so I could go and travel with the Continental Singers. Just a, just a year later, I had an opportunity to go to a mission trip to Jamaica, where I, I know you're thinking mission work, yeah, right. No, it was a mission trip to Jamaica, sharing the gospel with students through VBS and teaching in a church, and it cost two grand. And this campus minister asked me to come, and I said, I don't have the two grand. He said, call your parents. I called mom and dad. They said, hey, you remember what we told you about the Continental Singers? We ain't paying. You trust God. Thanks a lot. You know, so I come back to the guy, and I said, hey, I don't have the money. And he said, you know what? 
in between that time, God has provided a scholarship for you. I was able to go to Jamaica. The very next year, I had an opportunity to go to the Ukraine. And I was in medical school at this point, in PA school. And I had opportunity to go to the Ukraine to do some medical missions. I didn't have the money. Told that to the team leader. He said, no problem. We sponsor medical students like you. I was in PA school. Uh, your, your trip is covered. I'm like, man, that's incredible. The very next year, I had an opportunity to go to Romania. And there was a, a, a deadline of $300 deposit due by April the 15th, of which I had none of the money. Called my parents again. What do you think they said? Got to trust God. We're, gonna, we're not going to give you the money. I'm like, it's just 300 bucks. Come on, guys. I like worked my way down. They said, you got to trust the Lord if you want to go. And I said, all right, I'm going to trust the Lord. I keep praying about it, keep praying about it. The day comes of the deadline. I've got no money. I'm leaving class to go over to the doctor's office, this Christian doctor leading the trip to tell him I can't go. I'll have to withdraw my name. And one of my classmates came up to me out of the blue and said, Adam, I don't know what's going on, but God told me to give you this. He sticks an envelope in my hand, walks out the door. I open the envelope, 300 bucks. I've just seen God time and time and time again answer above and beyond all that I could ever ask for or imagine. I remember working as a PA. I had an opportunity to land a job working in, the, in cardiovascular and thoracic surgery. You got to realize I was 22. I had zero medical experience other than a degree in physician assistant medicine. I had applied for jobs all over the state of Georgia. Somehow this heart surgeon got my resume, called me, interviewed me, said, you're hired. I worked for him for a year for a certain salary. At the end of that year, he said, you did a great job. We got a little Christmas bonus for you. And I'm thinking, oh, that's cool. Maybe it's like 100 bucks, 500 bucks. That'd be really generous. Open the check, $40,000 check. I've seen God answer above and beyond time and time again. I have an opportunity to come to the master's seminary. I'm about to graduate. Don't have any pastoral experience whatsoever. A pastor by the name of Ken Ramey calls, uh, calls, calls me, sets up an appointment. We interview by the grace of God. We had an opportunity to go serve in Texas where it's really hot and humid. And so we served there for seven and a half years. At the end of that time, we have an opportunity and a call to come here. And it's like, are you kidding me? We don't deserve anything. To come serve as the pastor of Placerita Baptist Church was an unbelievable opportunity. And I thought I didn't have a chance at all. And I didn't, apart from the grace of God. And by the grace of God, we are where we are. And by the way, I could have never gotten into the house that we're now in without your generous gift, if you remember, a little over a year ago, to give us that down payment to get into the house, which surmounted the bonus I got as a PA, just so that I could get into some home and live and minister to you dear people. What I'm trying to say is, I've just seen God do it time and time again, and I'm convinced that this text, while it's not talking about money or education, those things can be included in God answering above and beyond all that you can ask or imagine. I know that God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all I could ask for or imagine. I know this because it's what the Bible teaches, and I know this from living a life of faith by experience. And so there is no doubt this morning that God is more than able to meet every need in this room. There's no doubt that God is able to remove every burden in this room. There's no doubt he's able to heal every sick person in this room. He's able to provide for every widow, to protect every child, to feed every poor person, to save every lost person, and to build his church. What we'll see in this passage this morning is that we ought to be coming to God with that kind of anticipation and expectation that God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly more than all we could ever ask and think. And so this is the response of Paul in what we call a doxology at the end of this prayer. Technically, the prayer has four requests. We've been over them the last four times together in this passage. He requested that they would be strengthened with power in verses 14 through 16, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith in verse 17, that God would uh, help them to understand the depth of his love for them in verses 18 and 19. And then we finished at the peak of this prayer at the end of verse 19. It was prayed that they, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. And then here we are at what we call again the doxology or this eruption of praise. And by the way, praise and prayer just go together. 
We have that every Thanksgiving on our uh, Thanksgiving service is an opportunity to offer what? Praises and maybe prayer requests. And the idea is that when you pray a prayer, like what Paul prayed, he can't help but to respond in any other way than to just praise God and give God all the praise that he's due. And so this incredible prayer, (coughs) excuse me, that Paul offers for the Ephesian church climax at the end of verse 19, and then he kicks off this doxology in verses 20 and 21. And it's obvious here that Paul is just not satisfied with where the believers in Ephesus are. He wants them to continue to raise their eyes to heaven and to see this good and gracious and giving God that they can't even imagine all that they could ask for him. While these requests have been given, he's saying, guys, there's bigger requests than this. We've requested some incredible things that Christ would dwell in your heart through faith, that you would know the fullness of God, that you would understand all of this, but it keeps going. The prayers and the praises to God never stop. And so according to Martin Lloyd-Jones on this passage, he writes this, the question that now arises is this, do we feel impelled to join Paul? Are we animated by the same feelings and the same thoughts? Having read the various petitions in prayer and having arrived at the climax, are we conscious of the inevitability of the doxology? Do we feel, as the apostle did, this almost unrestrainable desire to praise God and to magnify his grace? Have we been moved and thrilled as the apostle as we have realized the tremendous possibilities open to us in this present life? It would be very wrong to begin to consider this doxology without facing such questions. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say this, Or is it possible that we rather have the feeling that the apostle has said too much? We believe the gospel. We are Christians, and we believe that this is all by faith. But when he begins to talk about Christ dwelling in our hearts and our knowing this love of Christ and being filled with all the fullness of God, then do we suspect that he has gone too far, (coughs) that he is beside himself and has become the victim of his own eloquence? Do we feel that these things are possible only for a very exceptional people such as the apostle himself? Do we feel that they are beyond the reach of the ordinary Christians, so-called, and certainly not possible for us? The good doctor then finishes his thought. We are in one of these two positions. If we caught a glimpse of these things and seen the possibility, we must feel the desire to offer the doxology and join the apostle in it. But if we are doubtful and hesitant, we shall be debating and arguing with ourselves and wondering whether this is not some strange sort of mysticism. The doxology tests us and our profession of the Christian faith. You understand what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying? He's saying, are you going to join Paul in this kind of prayer and in this kind of praise? Are you going to say, no, 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 Paul's kind of outdone himself now. In fact, this prayer sounds a little charismatic. I I need to be a little bit more conservative and didactic in my prayers, and I don't want to kind of come off the leash, if you will, and just go crazy asking for the moon and everything else that he's asking for. But what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and obviously here in the epistle himself, is that we're commanded to pray in this way and that we are to have this unbelievable expectation of God to do above and beyond all we can ask or imagine. We are commanded to ask God. We are to praise him with a measured thought, but also with an uncontrollable praise. And so as we look at this doxology this morning, I want us to ask ourselves three questions. And as we answer these three questions, hopefully you will truly join in this reverberation of praise. All right, here are the three questions. You ready? Number one, how much is God able to do? How much is God able to do? Well, look at the first part of verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask 
or think? And so I'm going to give the answer in five parts, how much is God able to do? And in order for us to fully appreciate uh, what is implied in these words, it should be noted that Paul's reasoning has taken these steps of growing bigger and bigger. We're going to see a lot of superlatives stacked up on each other, but let's just start here with the first one, which is this. What is God able to do? Number one, all that we ask. That's what he's able to do, all that we ask. And for whatever reason, we are not in the habit of asking for very much in prayer. And I think a lot of it is because of the way we've been raised here in America. If you had a good conservative mom and dad who wanted to raise you well, when you asked for a cookie, they may have said no. Or if they did give you a cookie and you asked for a second one, they looked at you shamefully like, oh, really? You're going to ask for another cookie? No. Or we went out to the restaurant and you asked if you could order a drink. My kids, dad, can we get lemonade? To which I say, no, we're drinking water. Be satisfied with this water. And we can squeeze a few lemons on the side and put the sugar in there. But the idea is that we're used to telling our kids no. And so we kind of get into that program of, oh, I can't ask for too much. If I ask for too much, I'm like a spoiled brat. And mom and dad have all along, I've almost embarrassed to ask for things because when you ask, you keep getting told no. Well, if we're not careful, this has trickled over into our prayer life. And we're scared to ask God for something big and something grand because it almost sounds uh, like it's self-focused. And of course it could be, but the idea is that we forego praying huge requests altogether. But understand this morning that the Bible actually commands us to ask for things in prayer. Consider Jesus in Matthew 7, 7. Ask, it's in the imperative, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. Consider what Jesus says in John fifteen seven: If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, again in the imperative, and it will be done for you. Again, in the next chapter, John sixteen twenty four: Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy will be made full. James also addresses this in James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding reproach and it will be given to him. And so God is able to answer all that we ask. Now, both Jesus and James do give some qualifications in John 14, 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so we're reminded that you've got to ask for things that are for the glory of God. You've got to ask for things that are in accordance with God's will. You can't just ask or treat God like a genie and demand that he give you whatever you want, particularly when it has to do with material possessions. James also warns us in James 4, 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. But the answer still is, let's don't let the correction or the qualification of asking keep us from asking at all. We're still commanded to ask. And so let me ask you this morning, are you asking God? Are you asking him for him to do an incredible work through prayer? Have you come to him each day with great requests? Well, not only is God able to grant all that we ask, but all that we could even think about asking. And that's our second one. What is God able to do? Number two, all that we can think. Not only is God able to do all that we ask, he's able to do all that we think. So just in case you're afraid to really ask for it, you could just think it. Just in case you grew up again in that conservative home where you were taught not to ask for much, we learn from the Bible that God is able to answer all that we could ever ask or even think about asking. I mean, can you imagine as a kid, just think about asking for whatever you want. I want you to ask me for it. That's what God's saying. And again, we're not talking about just uh, possessions here. We're talking about something that's intangible. We're talking about the peace of God and salvation. And we're talking about uh, all kinds of things that, go, that, that money can't buy. Uh, the NIV translates this word think as imagine. So the NIV would say that we should uh, be able to ask God immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. So the idea is that not only can we think about it, anything you can imagine 
Ask for it. This is what he's saying here in this verse. And so that now that we are being told to think about asking for more, uh, should we think about asking for salvation of that lost family member or friend? Absolutely, you should do it. Should you think about asking for a godly wife or a godly husband? Absolutely, go and do it. Should you think about asking for a scholarship to school? Yes. Should you think about asking for an amazing marriage? Yes. Should you think about asking for the salvation of our president and for all the world leaders? Absolutely. Should you think about asking for revival for our church? Yes. Should you think about asking for a bigger building here in our church? Absolutely. Should you think about asking for a more dependable car? Yes. You can ask because you think about thinking that your pastor would preach better sermons. Please do. Ask God to help us all grow in the wisdom and knowledge of him. And so the point is, we are not asking for enough from God. And then we, 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 we run out of things to ask for. And we're afraid that if we start asking like this, again, that we'll be considered to be charismatic. And so we don't want to come to God demanding him or claiming him to do certain miracles that we want on the spot. But we certainly want to come to him with this humility and just to beg and ask God to do all that he has called, uh, all that he's uh, laid out for us that he's willing to do. We talked about this a little bit in verse 16, that it's according to the riches of his glory. It's not like he's going to go to the well and it's going to be dry. You know, when I go to my parents, they might have checked their bank account and said, look, we don't have enough to support you for this mission trip. I understand that. But God didn't have that problem. He's like, yeah, I got it. I got it. I can give above and beyond all that you need. And we talked a little bit about Napoleon. Remember that he, 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 had, he had given somebody a tremendous gift because they had asked him a tremendous favor. And when asked about it, Napoleon said, because he honored me by the magnitude of his request. Are you honoring God by the magnitude of your request? The magnitude of your request stems from the magnitude of your faith. Much faith equals big request. Little faith equals little request. We talked about John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, who also wrote this song, Thou Art Coming to a King. Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such that none could ever ask for too much. And I would just wonder if a church that we're asking God to do all that we could ask or think, but there's more. Here's where he begins to heap on some superlatives. The third one is he does more than all we can ask or think. So not only is he able to do everything you ask and everything you can think about, He says, I'm going to raise it up one level. I'll do more than that. I'll do more than all that you ask. I can do more than all you can even think. And so here, Paul pyramids words on top of each other to describe the superabundant blessings of God. He uses the word more, which could also be translated as beyond. So go ahead and ask for anything. Go ahead and think of more to ask for, and he will provide for that as well. Now, that stuff that you couldn't think of, he's going to do that too. God is able to do beyond all that you can ask or think. And not only that, the fourth uh, step here is that he can do abundantly more than all we can ask or think. The root word here of abundantly doesn't just mean a little bit more. It means much more, much, much more. So he's saying ask Think about what you can ask. I'll do more than that. Oh, I'll do abundantly more than that. That's the heart of God. And then not only will he do abundantly more than you can think or ask, then he says, I'll do exceedingly, abundantly more than all we can ask or think. He's going to do exceedingly, abundantly more than all we can ask or think. And the prefix is then added to that word abundantly to where we could call it superabundantly or exceedingly, abundantly more than all you could ask or think. And so the idea here is this word, this superabundantly word that Paul kind of makes up by propping up some more suffixes on already exaggerated words, this word, superabundantly, is used only three times in the Bible. It's used here in this prayer, and it's used in two other contexts. Turn there with me, if you will. They're both in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and chapter 5. The first one, other than the one here in Ephesians, that is found in 1 Thess chapter 3, and look at verses 9 and 10. It actually also is in the context of prayer. And so he says this, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before 
our God. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Super abundantly is translated in the ESV, most earnestly. Again, in the context of prayer, this is how they're praying. Above and beyond, that they might be able to encourage the Thessalonians, see them face to faith, face to face and supply through the gospel and through discipleship what is lacking in their faith. And so the word is used now twice in the context of prayer, Ephesians 3, 1 Thess 3, and then the third time it's mentioned in the Bible is in 1 Thess 5. Look at chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. This is not in the context of prayer. This is in the context of how you treat your pastor, of how you treat your elders. First Thess 5, 12, and 13, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. So what is he saying? To that elder who gets in your kitchen, to that pastor who steps on your toes, to that person who comes to you in the name of the Lord to help you grow out of hopefully love and kindness and gentleness, how are we supposed to respond to them? We are to esteem them super abundantly. We are to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And I just want to say to you, I believe you model that beautifully. I have only experienced in my short time here the beautiful, blessed, I've been the recipient of your very high esteem because of the work of the Lord from this pulpit. I think I can speak on behalf of all the elders. We have only sensed your, your, your willingness and desire to follow and to, to follow the Lord ultimately, right? And to follow us as we seek God's wisdom to lead this church for, uh, forward. And so we're, we're seeking that super abundantly in prayer and we're seeking that super abundantly as we submit to Christ's appointed leaders of the church, the elders who serve here at Placerita. And so back to Ephesians 3, we see again that this passage is reminding us that this is how we ought to pray. We ought to pray beyond what we can ask or think. Let me just give you three biblical examples uh, that you can just listen to. You know them well. I'm going to talk for just a moment about Abraham, Moses, and David. And let's see how God answered their prayers super abundantly. You ready? Abraham. He was a pagan living in Ur of Chaldeans. He was given all that he had by God's good and gracious hand. He told Abraham, God did, that he would make him to be a source of blessing to others. God gave him a son, and he asked, uh, asked for this son, and he gave him the son through Sarah in a miraculous way. But according to Genesis 25, Abraham had six other children after that. And not only that, in a short time later, he went up against four kings of the east, and Abraham was able to muster 318 trained men of war to pursue them. Now, God promised him a son, but he gave him so much more. Well, way more important was than the possessions and even the lineage of the physical children. Way more important than that is that through this one son, Isaac, through Sarah, would be in some ways a picture of Christ. He was used to teach Abraham about the sacrifice of the coming Christ through his own son. He taught him about the gospel. And so we learn that the, the blessing promised for Abraham would also be for all of his spiritual descendants as the people of God who would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. So he asked for one son. God gave him more than stars and sand than you can count. Super early, uh, super abundantly. How about Moses? With Moses, we could say essentially the same thing. He was born in obscurity to a mother who was a slave in, to Egypt. Later, God told Moses that he was going to cause Pharaoh to let his people go and that they would leave Israel and, uh, or leave Egypt and head to the promised land. At first, Moses did not feel up to the task, but God insisted. And when he showed Moses how he would work miracles through him, Moses obeyed the Lord. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, could Moses have anticipated the full extent of the plagues God brought on Egypt, the turning of the water to the, uh, of the land uh, to blood, the multiplication of frogs, gnats, and flies, the plague of the livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and eventually the death of the firstborn? Could he have anticipated the miracles of the Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptians, the cloud that accompanied the people during the years of wandering and protected them, the manna, the water from the rock, and the other miracles? 
Could Moses have guessed that God would appear to him again and give him the law or that he would work through him to give him the first five books of the Bible? God just told him, go let my people go, set my people free, told Pharaoh, let my people go. But he did super abundantly all that Moses could have ever asked for or imagined. How about David? You have David born as a shepherd boy, least of the brothers, but called by God to deliver the Israelites from Goliath and from the Philistines. God blessed David beyond his dreams by making him the first great king of Israel, not like Saul, but a greater king who, while he was not perfect, was still a man after God's own heart. And at the end of David's life, God announced that the Messiah would come through his lineage, through Bethlehem, where David was from. That's where Christ would come, according to Micah 5.2. But he gives him this Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel, and, and then David responds this way, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? He was mesmerized and blown away by God's gracious covenant that he made with his own lineage that the Messiah would come from him. And so he responds, therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Well, this is just how God works. God works super abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or think. God takes something ordinary and makes it extraordinary. God takes something natural and makes it supernatural. God takes whatever you can do and he makes it into something that only he can do. And the, the question is, are we going to pray this way? Are we going to respond in praise this way? Are we going to acknowledge and believe and walk by faith? Are you willing to be accused this morning of being a borderline charismatic because your requests are so bold and so bodacious and so brilliantly big that people, when they hear you pray, are like, oh, I don't know if they should ask for that or not. They think God can save all their children at a young age and give them all scholarships to school and turn them all into missionaries? Huh? How dare they pray that? Are you willing to pray above and beyond all that you can ask for? Or do you want to just pray nice American cookie-cutter prayers that God would just give you two kids, two cars, two houses, two boats, two vacation homes? Come on, ask for three. Come on, ask for another. Keep asking for more. All right, let's move on. A second question I want to ask you this morning is this. Number two, how is God able to do more? How is God able to do more? I'll tell you how. Verse 20, second half says this. We read that, that he, he can do more than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So how is God able to do more? First, according to his incredible might, According to his incredible might, we read again in verse 20, it's according to the power that is at work. The power at work. This word for power, we've already discussed. It's the same word for power that we saw in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And so this word power means ability. It means capability of acting. The word refers to the power or ability of God who is capable to accomplish any task he so desires. Here the word is modified with the participle work. So he has the power to work. This gives us the idea that this is the energy which is not static, but it's actively working or actually accomplishing something in real time. So it's not just that God's able to do it. It's that he is doing it. He's, his power is working even now. It's an incredible power. We're talking about the first cause that caused all the causes in the world. This is the power of God working. We're talking about a source of energy and power that has always been, is, and will always be. We're talking about the only source of power and energy in the world that makes all of the world's nuclear energy combined no more powerful than a AAA battery. We're talking about the power that makes all the energy which exists in the universe look like the energy of a fly trying to lift itself off of a sticky surface. We're talking about the power of God 
which is working incredibly all the time, everywhere. And it's no greater scene than in the gospel of grace, the fact that Jesus Christ came and lived as a human being, the fact that he humbled himself to become a man and that he died a criminal's death and that he was raised from the dead so that you could be transformed out of darkness into light. And this is not just some kind of stale work. This is not just some kind of power to be admired, but a person to be worshiped. And this is what verse, the end of verse 20 is all about. It's this power at work where? Statically, outside of us, somewhere in the universe. Where's the power at work? What does it say at the end of verse 20? Within us. It's the power at work within us. So we could say it this way, that it's according to his to his incredible work, but it's also according to his intimate work. That's an intimate work. This is, not, this is not God spinning his wheels over to the side, just kind of trying to accomplish something. No, he's accomplishing something with every stroke of his pen, with every word that he speaks, and he's accomplishing it in you as a believer. This is God's work in us, in you, and in me, and anyone who believes. This is why Paul can go hyperbole here. This is why Paul can use all of his superlatives and stack them up on top of each other. This is why Paul can try to exaggerate here, because it's the good news of the gospel, and the gospel is greater than hyperbole, God is greater than an infinite supply of superlatives. God's eons and eons more powerful than your best exponential exaggeration. I mean, you can't exaggerate God. He's bigger. He's better. He's more powerful. And anything you can even think about asking, he does more, abundantly more, no, super abundantly more than all you could ever ask or imagine. And it's in the gospel. This is greater than the work through Abraham, greater than the work through Moses, greater than the work through David. This is the work of Christ, and it's the work of Christ in you. You have the opportunity to see God through his son, Jesus Christ, to see God in all of his holiness, to see his perfection, to see him in all of his glory, to be filled with all the fullness of God through Christ. What a great opportunity for him to end this prayer with this kind of praise that we could just realize that, 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 that you may have no hope in and of yourself, but because of Christ who's in you, if you've repented of your sins and came to Christ, God can help you accomplish anything. God can help you overcome alcoholism. God can help you overcome an addiction to drugs. God can help you overcome an addiction to pornography. God can help you overcome an addiction to your foul mouth. God can help you overcome an addiction to your own pride and harshness because it's God through the gospel working in you. And oh, how I need that every moment of every day that my lips would be filled with words of compassion and grace with my own wife, with my own children, with people I get annoyed with sometimes. Not you people, other people, other people. But the idea is that if we've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave himself for me. Have you come to him in this way, acknowledging his power, acknowledging his intimacy in you? Our third question this morning, number three, how will God's glory be on display? How will God's glory be on display? First, in the glory of the church. In the glory of the church. To him be glory in the church. The antecedent there would be for God at the end of verse 19 with all the fullness of God. We're going to talk about Christ in a second. So he's talking about the glory of God the Father. How will God's glory be on display? How? In the glory of the church. The word church or ecclesia is a congregation, an assembly, a gathering It has already been mentioned twice in Ephesians. Look at chapter 1, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And then again in chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so what he's saying is God's glory is on display in the church Because it's Christ who's the head over the church, who works in the church, who fills the church. And the church itself becomes a broadcasting mechanism that angels look upon and and, and glory in to understand the, the, the power of the gospel at work in the life of a sinner, making them a saint. 
And so the church began in Acts 2, but on the day of Pentecost, but it continues here in Ephesians 2 as we understand that all Gentiles and Jews are to become one man. We spent a long time talking about verses 11 through 22 about how even those who are far off away from the covenants of promise have been brought near. And those Jews need to come not out of their heritage or their physical lineage, but rather through faith in Christ that they become one new man. And so God's glory is seen in the community of the church. God's glory is seen in the unity of the church. God's glory is seen in the immunity of the church. The idea that it's not going to die. It's going to keep lasting as we'll see in a moment forever and ever. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So God's glory is on display in the church. But check this out. God's glory is also displayed in the glory of Christ. So it's on display in the glory of the church, but also in the glory of Christ. Now look at the grammar, if you will. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. A simple coordinating conjunction, the word chi. Wait wait a second. Is he placing the glory of the church and the glory of Christ on the same plane? Surely not, we would have to think. Right? We're tempted to think, well, there's no way. Yes, the glory of Christ, but not the glory of the church. Those can't be said on a parallel because we know people in the church. And we know our pastors in the church and our elders in the church are not perfect. They are fallen men. And so we're tempted to think, well, the glory of the church is going to be subpar to the glory of Christ. Well, in one way, I would agree with that thinking in general, but I think what he's trying to do here is not so much lower the glory of Christ as he is raising up the glory of the church. And the idea here is he's saying that, look, in this super abundant request that we ask, we're going to also see that God is glorified in the church and in Christ. Here's two reasons I think we can say that. Number one is this. This isn't in your outline, but just listen. The church is Christ's body. The church is Christ's body. You can't have a head without a body. And so when it said in Ephesians 1, and 23, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, he's saying, look, Christ is the head, but Christ also has a body. And the body is the church. That's one body. It's Christ as our head, and the rest of us in Christ function as his body. So in that sense, we both equally bring glory to God. Christ in us, not us, but the work of salvation. It's the gospel in us. Or we could also say that the church is Christ's body, but the church is also Christ's bride. And so if you were to look at Ephesians 5, we see clearly that we are not only the body of Christ, we are the bride of Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and as himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives ought to submit to their, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Then at the end of the chapter, in verse 32, he says, This mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Again, you cannot have a groom without a bride. And so how will we see God's glory on display? It's in the church and in Christ. And then we could say, lastly, it's in the glory of Kronos. You're like, great, Adam. Thanks a bunch. Well, that's the Greek word for what? For time. Right? So it's in the church, it's in Christ, and it's forevermore. The end of verse 21, that to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You have to understand that from the beginning of time with Adam in the garden, there was never such a thing as an unbeliever. There was always a living believer on the planet. Even when the church began formally in Acts 2 till today, there's always been believers on the planet. There's never been a gap in any generation ever. You say, well, what about the, the, the uh, you know, what about the Middle Ages? And uh, what about Martin Luther? Well, praise God for Martin Luther. But there were always believers from the time of Acts 2, even to Martin Luther. They may not be as well documented, but when you study historical theology, you can find sub-pockets of documentation of believing communities of the church, which existed all throughout history, though God definitely used Martin Luther in the Reformation in a great way to wake up the church. 
So here's the idea is that this happens for all of time. There will never be a gap in any generation, and it lasts forever and ever. Only Christ is eternal from eternity past. But you and I come into existence and will walk with Christ hand in hand into eternity future. We will be with him forever and ever. Well, let me give you just a couple of take-home points to think about to wrap up this, some application here for this morning's in this message. The first is this, ask God to do things that super abundantly go beyond you, all you could ever ask or think. Let me just challenge you this morning. Let me challenge myself this morning. Let me challenge us as a church that we would begin to ask God for things that super abundantly go beyond all that we could ever ask for or think. I'm afraid that we limit ourselves too much. I'm afraid that we're not really carrying out this, this, the, the, the heart of this, of this doxology that we would ask far more abundantly, knowing that God is able to do that in accordance with his will. Let me encourage you that this will take some discipline. This will take effort. If you're not used to praying this way, you'll run out of prayer requests really quick. But the more you get into God's word, you begin asking and asking and asking and asking and asking and asking because you know that he's exceedingly abundantly to do far more than all that you could ask or think. Secondly, acknowledge every day this great power at work in you through the gospel. So acknowledge that every day. This is a great power at work. It's not static energy. It's working in me. I don't feel like it's working, but God says it's working. And the doctrine of sanctification tells me it's working from Scripture. I believe God's at work in me. So let me think about the gospel. Let me think about what God's done. Let me think about what he's called me to do. And every day I'm going to pray like Paul prayed. I'm going to doxologize like he doxologized in the sense of he's just going to give praise to God. And then third, ascribe to God the glory due him in the church and in Christ Jesus forevermore. Don't you dare be a part of the church bringing shame or reproach upon Christ. God sees his church as the bride of his son. May God help us to ascribe to him that glory due him by how we live and how we function and how we pray as a church. How do we pray? Above and beyond, however you're praying now. God help us to do this with his glory in mind. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at this text this morning. I pray that you would do a great work here in our hearts. I pray that you would convict us of a lackadaisical prayer life that only uh, eats away at the corners of what the Christian life ought to be. I pray that you would give us a boldness, but at the same time, an incredible humility, knowing it's only Christ and his work in us that can accomplish that that you want to do in our hearts. May it start, God, in me. May it start in each individual. May you bring revival to this church through your word being alive in us. May you free us to live for you with an incredible passion, with an unbelievable obedience, with an incredible humility, with a fantastic others-focused uh, mentality. God, do a great work in this church. God, allow us to be more evangelistic. Allow us to walk by faith. Help us to have God-centered marriages and God-centered families and a God-centered church where we love and encourage one another. I pray, God, that you would begin a great work through uh, this body as we look to this prayer, as we think about this doxology, and as we join this eruption of praise to you, God. We worship you. We bow at your feet, and we thank you for the privilege of being called your children. And I pray that we would never forget this doxology, this praise to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.